Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're well into the month of May here in Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and I'm enjoying a beautiful, gray, rainy day, which uh, I'm not ashamed of saying that I absolutely love. It's why I live in Oregon, after all. Um, We have a wonderful show planned for you today with three of our educators joining us for conversations on a range of interesting topics. In the final two-thirds of the show, we'll bring in a dynamic duo of admissions and financial aid experts to talk about preparing for the transition to college, which is a much a must listen if you're sending a senior off to college in the fall. That's right, folks. We are not done with you yet. Uh, Even if you have a student that's already gotten into college, we've still got some tips to share. But first, we're going to continue with a series we started in the first week of May. I think on the May 2nd show was when we aired this initial conversation. And it's the Kindness Matter series. We think this is something that ought to be important to everyone, but it can be especially useful for students who are applying to college as they're starting to think about the kind of person that they're going to be. So joining me today to talk about the role of service work in the Kindness Matters series is former Barnard Admission Officer Kara Courtois. Welcome back to the show, Kara. Thanks for having me, Ian. So we are talking about service work, and I think not in the sort of traditional way I think that, that high schools and students talk about it, which is to say, how many hours do you have? How many hours do you need to graduate? How many hours do you need to put on your college applications to impress colleges? Uh, I think one of the most common questions we get is, how many hours of service do I need to do to be competitive for college Mm -hmm. admission? Um, I guess I just, I would ask you, what, what do you say in response to that question, which we get so frequently? Yeah, we do. Yeah. It's, I was really struck when I first got that question in admissions because I I never had thought about it from that perspective, you know, flipping myself out of that role um, and had come to admissions from a teaching and um, campus ministry service coordinator background. So I thought, oh, well, colleges don't require hours yeah. in the admissions process. So I, did, I was struck by that question of, well, they don't require it. But then as I got further into it admissions and certainly in the years since, I think what, you know, I look at it now as a vast majority, and I think I've read somewhere that the number of students who, who do service of some sort before applying is upwards of 80% of applicant pools. So I can see where that question genuinely comes from. Mm-hmm. Still, my experience is that it's not required by colleges typically, it is nice to see, and I think where you and I are probably headed is talking about how it's just such a great way to demonstrate to a college your interest and your involvement in your community. Yeah, I think I think my approach is always the, the literal question of how many hours of service I need to uh, qualify for a particular college. I would always just say zero. You, you don't need any, right. but, but let's, let's talk about why you might want to do service, right? I mean, there's a, there's a sort of a question behind the question and it's been, I think really interesting. And I, I do want to get more into this conversation about what service can be, but I think it has been very interesting to observe that the reaction of high schools, especially independent private high schools to the perception that service is important to colleges has been to just sort of mandate a certain minimum number of hours to say you have to do a hundred hours of service, which almost sounds like court mandated service that you, that is a punishment uh-huh. for something. Um, uh-huh. how, how do, how should students sort of think about that sort of requirement that they might have to do 20 hours a year in order to graduate? What is, what does that mean? Yeah. And how do we sort of grapple with that assignment? Well, I mean, I always try to, you know, reach it with positivity in the sense of for those opportunities when we do get to speak with families about that question of, wow, well, great. That, you know, I mean, it's okay. It has to be done at your school. So mm-hmm. that means your school places value on it. But then let's look at it from a vantage point of, well, how would you like to, you know, perform that service rather than it being mandated? I've got to check the box. 
I'm really trying to steer their thinking more towards, you know, I have this opportunity and I actually get to indicate it in my high school as well as on my future application. What would I like to do with that time? And trying to map it out of um, something that hopefully will invite that they want to do more than 20 hours, which is what I, I know the high schools that mandate it, that is their hope as well. That it's not right. really a student who's going to focus on the quantity so much as the quality of the of what they gain from the experience. Exactly. It's like, you know, when I try and get my kids to clean up after themselves, I try and mandate a small task and then hope that they develop the habit to continue doing it in other spaces. Um, it hasn't necessarily <laughs> caught on with a six and a five-year-old, but uh, hopefully <laughs> high schoolers are a little bit different. Um, you sort of yep. introduce this, this topic of community, I think, just, you know, sort of the idea that this happens within your school um, or that it's sort of connected to your community. I, I think that that's really important. Um, is is for students to sort of start with this concept of what is my community? Before I can even think about service, how do I define it? Um, what are some ways that students might think about what community means to them and, and the community that they might be serving with a project like, like one of these uh, service projects? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to start first and foremost with where their interests lie, you know, and for some, and where they're comfortable. So for some students, you know, it could be directly in their own school building where they could serve as a tour guide or a peer mentor or a peer tutor or, you know, a, an assistant, you know, lab if they like the sciences or, you know, setting up that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. If they're someone who, you know, has interests outside the community, a lot of times, for instance, animals, you know, come up, often not allowed in the, the campus setting. So a student who has an interest in animals might look outside to their local community a little bit more. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. an animal shelter, my local animal refuge is my favorite thing to recommend for students because it's all a volunteer base. So there's always a need, you know, for some sort of volunteer. So, and then for some students, they want to go bigger than that because maybe, you know, they, they maybe they need to be woken up a little bit and sometimes need to, you know, extend their community further outside the boundaries um, to maybe understand what service looks like. So that's where I, I'm, that's kind of what I'm thinking. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that that really makes sense. I, I think community, when we think of community service, it's sort of, is like, all right, I'm going to go do this thing for my town, or it's going to be sort of out in the place that I live, but we can define communities in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, whether it's going to be something as small as a family, um, a little bit bigger, like a, a class or um, a, a school community, you might say your town or your city or even your state, and then and then your country as well. I mean, I think that, and the world, like there are a lot of different ways to sort of think about community service and, and what community means within that context. And I think that as you think about community in a variety of different ways, you open yourself up to different kinds of um opportunities, right? So let's say uh, I want to serve the world. Like it's really important to me to serve uh, not just a particular country or town or, or school, but the whole world. Well, then you might start to sort of focus in on different kinds of service projects as a result of that, because you say, all right, I'm really care about cleanup or um, inv- the environment or the ecosystem, mm-hmm. biodiversity, whatever it may be. And so identifying, first of all, I think what community it is that you want to impact which I think students often mm-hmm. take for granted. Like community service just means, you know, whatever. It's in my town. But if you think about your community as yep. the, the area you want to make the impact, it can lead you in the right direction in terms of the kinds of projects that might be available to you. Mm-hmm. And with that, I will add that, you know, for many students is that they, I think it's just we're trying to steer them away from just checking the boxes and just listening you know, to their their heart speak. And to often, as much as they have global aspirations, those global aspirations can often start close to home. So right. if they do want to save turtles because they've always loved turtles, they do not have to go to the Galapagos Islands. And, <laughs> no. you know, the, the question that's always asked is, will that be more impressive to admissions if I go to the Galapagos as opposed to, you know, finding out how to stop people buying straws or, you know, um, using paper straws instead of uh, plastic straws, which seems to be the thing uh, where I live at the moment. And I think always, always start closer to home, especially in high school, because there's so much that can be done, especially at their age level. 
Right. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's part part of the project there is sort of if there's something you care about that is universal, find a way in your local community to impact it. Find a way to to uh-huh. be connected to it, even within your the space where you can get to regularly. And I think that's an interesting sort of transition, right, is to think about this as um, something that you create in terms of a habit. Uh, how would you sort of talk to students about ways that they can demonstrate a commitment to some sort of service uh, that they really care about? What what are sort of, what are some of the ways that not necessarily to check a box, but to show that it is something you care about? I mean, I, I often say, again, figure out exactly what you said is figure out what it is that, you know, is important to you. And so if it's the environment, if it's animals, if it's people, if it's, you know, uh, immigration, whatever it is, you know, whatever, um, you know, entity speaks to your heart, um, because some students are really drawn to working with elderly people, for instance, and some would really rather not (laughs) and run, you know, the other direction. So sort of identifying sort of the um, group with which you really want to dedicate yourself and try to think around that and kind of build, you know, a plan. And usually it's just starting in one place and maybe even staying that place for four years because mm-hmm. that allows you to grow further into a role. And I've seen students go from, you know, filing papers uh, at their local historical society and really feeling like they weren't doing much, but they kept showing up, you know, and they kept coming for different events that the place was sponsoring. And then suddenly they're doing a Civil War reenactment, you know, their senior year because they, you know, they really built a name for themselves just by continuing to be exposed. Um, to the place and, and showing their face and showing a dedication to one place. So it can certainly take all forms, but I think trying to think about, you know, where is it that you'd like to spend time because you're more likely to go back and then you're more right. likely to maybe take on bigger projects. Yeah, it, and it is about it is about taking on sort of deeper levels of commitment, right? So if you show up for a service project on the first day, they have to spend a certain amount of time training you. They have to tell you what everything yeah. is. They have to talk about their mission. They have to say, here's what we do with our volunteers. There's a lot of sort of orientation that happens in that first trip. But mm-hmm. if you go back two weeks later, they say, oh, we've seen you here before. You know what to do. Get right yeah. to it. And and you start yeah. to make a deeper commitment because you don't have to have that orientation every single time that you show up and, and connect on that front. Yep. And so I think that that's a really valuable thing is that the habituation that comes from just going again and again uh, is really valuable. You also become a friendly face, and especially if you're interacting with yeah. people. You know, they can say, hey, Kara, it's great to see you again. You start developing relationships and connecting with people on that front. Um I want to ask you, actually, because I think that this creates a little bit of a contrast between ways that students can engage in service. So one option would be, I'm going to go directly to an organization that I think needs me, whether it's a humane society or um, retirement home or whatever it might be. Um, But there are other ways that students connect with service through service clubs, like the National Honor Society or the Key Club, where there are a lot of different projects for a lot of different communities. Um, How might students think about those differences in terms of their engagement with community service? Yeah, I mean, I think if they're coming at it with a, you know, with a, a genuine heart of, you know, I want to get involved and I am yeah, looking for ways to get involved. I think, first of all, I think NHS and the Key Club do great work and they're a great socializing space as well for some students and especially in the early years of high school and maybe being introduced to the idea of service can be a really nice place for students to start because they're mm-hmm. not going off on their own. They're not having to forge a path of their own. Something's created for them. And then it, lo and behold, some of those students might naturally grow into leadership roles, say, in NHS or Key Club yeah. and eventually be leading you know, some of those groups. So that's a, those are just wonderful opportunities. I think for some other students, though, especially those who have a very specific focus or grow to have a specific focus, you know, that then often maybe they still do things with Key Club, but that's kind of a sideshow for them. They really have maybe chosen, you know, one place that they want to dive more deeply into and then often, you know, might not be, you know, joined uh, to the Key Club or NHS. So I think they both have value. I definitely would say, you know, from the admissions side, 
NHS Key Club, you know, it it is seen as having value, but it doesn't necessarily um, allow for a place in the application. Sometimes where students can go deeply with it because maybe it was a one-time Habitat for Humanity experience, which absolutely had value, but it didn't provide as much depth to the student's overall experience. So right. you probably don't see it show up with great depth on an application. And it, uh, it's a lot harder to describe it. I mean, we think about, I went through with one of my students, um, his activities list yesterday, and we were looking at NHS. And even if you've done 10 different projects for 10 different organizations mm-hmm. for two hours each over the course of 10 weekends, you can't account for all of that information within your activities list because of the amount of space that's allowed to you. So you are necessarily choosing the ones that matter most to you just in the way that you convey your engagement with that particular mm-hmm. activity. And so in that regard, I think it, it's valuable to sort of think at the front end, what do I really care about? And then commit time to that organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that yep. NHS and the Key Club, you know, if you find something you really love, you can bring in other people from NHS to do that thing with you. You know, I've been going to yep. this hospital for three years. I want 10 of us to go and do this thing that they have a particular yep. need for. Um, so there's a real opportunity there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Kara, do you have any other sort of final thoughts uh, for students in terms of how they might approach or think about service uh, bef- before we uh, have to take a break? Uh I, I think one of the greatest things about service, and I say this from the days, especially when I was teaching and going on a lot of service projects with students, is that, um, you know, to be surprisable, you know, and as much as our conversation always is somewhere around the lens of college admissions and, you know, students thinking about um, how things might show up in an application, you know, just always recognize the fact that you are by doing the nature of any sort of service that you're likely going to learn something about yourself. So there's, you know, be surprisable and and be aware and and awake to those opportunities because it also might, you know, awaken you to, you know, greater interest down the road. So really just to enjoy it and invite people along with you. That's the only other thing I wanted to say is that, you know, it's never drudgery, but you'd be surprised. And it can be an awesome, awesome family thing to do at any age. So, you know, inviting family members to go with you would be a a great opportunity. And you always feel good. Um, You know, the people are so thankful to have you there helping, and and it's a great way to spend a morning uh, on the weekend. Um, And, you know, Kara, the radio show wouldn't be any fun if I didn't bring some of my uh, colleagues along to to help me with it, too. So I want to thank you for coming on the show and having this conversation with us today. My pleasure. Always. Thanks so much, Ian. Of course. Uh, Folks, when we come back, we're going to talk about the next big step towards college with a discussion on the transition. Uh, So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Now, we are excited to have the opportunity to talk to you today about the transition to college and the important steps associated with this critical period between the end of high school and the start of the next step in your educational adventure. Joining me today are two of my colleagues at College Coach. First, I'd like to welcome college finance expert, Jean Mahan. Hey there, Jean. Hi, Ian. It's great to have you on the show. And, and second, I'd like to welcome admissions expert, Lauren Randall, back to the show. Hey, Lauren. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you both. Now, and and I'd love for this to sort of just be a a three-person conversation uh, along these different topics, but I can imagine that Jean is going to have quite a bit of expertise that you and I don't have, Lauren, um, given her background in finance. And uh, and we'll see sort of where the conversation goes. But I think that fundamentally what we want to do is be able to help families uh, know what they're kind of looking out for um, as the year approaches. So, Gene, I think that the big thing that we want to start with is the price tag um, and the mm-hmm. bill. So when can families expect to get that first bill uh, for their college education? Yeah, Everyone's excited to get that. Well, it usually (laughs) arrives in July with a due date in August, and you'll only be paying for the first semester at that point. The second bill will come late December, early January for the spring semester. Um, So, yeah, it'll be coming pretty soon. Um, Usually after your student's registered, then they know, you know, the school knows how many credits they're taking, whether there's any labs involved. So that'll be around the time that they send out that bill. And the bill, you know, is the usually comes in my experience is going to come and, and is be addressed to the family. But we're also going to find that there's some other stuff that arrives in the mail, Lauren, um, that's specifically for the student, usually over the summer. What are some things that students can sort of look forward to in summer mailings from their school? Sure. Well, I'll point out if you're just watching the mailbox. The physical mailbox, you might miss something. The students really need to pay uh-huh. uh, close attention to their email, first of all. Yeah. Um, at this point, it's it's not just, they're not spamming you. You can be, you might miss something really important like um, housing registration could come by email or it could come in hard mail. Uh, you just, you don't know for sure. So check both for sure. Um, so housing is a big one. Um, there might be some uh, orientation packages that give you a date, um, and that's something you might need to plan l- l- well in advance uh, if it requires a flight or if you have a summer job and you need to take time off. could be in the summer. It could be an early start to the school year. So housing, uh, orientation, and perhaps even course registration could come by email um, or, in, or, in, or in your mailbox. Right. And yeah, I always think like, oh, it all came in the mail for me. But now I'm realizing that that was many years ago. And so uh, that is probably we should not go by that standard necessarily. So it's a great reminder to keep keep paying attention to email for a lot of really cool stuff that comes out. I mean, the first day of class is not when you need to be there, you're also going to find some extended orientation. And a lot of schools have really cool orientation trips that are even uh, in advance of orientation. And so you might have a chance to go backpacking with your future classmates, which can be really cool. So keep an eye out for some of that stuff. I think you don't want to miss an opportunity. Um, Gene, I wanted to come back to this concept of the bill because you know one of the things mm-hmm. that we like to talk about with uh, students at college coaches breaking a lot of their assignments into smaller pieces. And uh, there might be a way for some families to be able to to break up paying for the the bill in smaller pieces. Are, are there payment plans that families can keep an eye out for? Yes. And just before we get there, just to piggyback on what Lauren said, a lot of the bills will come by email as well and sometimes directly to the student, not necessarily to the parent. So as I used to always tell my kids, if you're not interested in what the school is sending you, I will be and just forward <laughs> it along to me. Okay. <laughs> because uh, things like health insurance waivers, your child may just, you know, blow that off, but that could save you a couple thousand dollars because your child is most likely covered under your plan. So important, you know, money-saving tip right there. 
Um, but to talk up a little bit about payment plans, I absolutely love them. I call them the unsung heroes of college finance. Lots of families that I work with have never even heard of them, or they may have used them as, you know, for private schools, high school, elementary school, but didn't realize it was an option at the college level. And usually the plans run either six, eight, or ten months, and I've seen a tiny number who have a 12-month plan, but that's really not norm, the norm. So you sign up for the plan, you pay an, a, a registration fee, it's anywhere between $30 a semester or 75 for the whole year, and then you can stretch your payments out over the whatever payment period you choose, 6, 8, or 10, and those payments are interest-free. So it allows you the flexibility to pay some of your bill by a payment plan, maybe using a student loan or a parent loan in conjunction with that. Um, but it's often easier to, you know, budget some of those expenses, even if it's only a couple of thousand dollars. If you were originally planning to borrow that amount, then now you've just reduced your borrowing by a couple thousand times four. So I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of payment plans. Um, I used them myself with my oldest child, and I found it to be a very convenient way to pay the bill. So love yeah, them. It- and they're terrific. I mean, I I do payment plans right now with my my kids going to preschool and and aftercare. And and the idea of all of a sudden having to switch to paying a bulk payment for something like that would be really hard to think about. Uh-huh. So this is a this is a huge yeah. expense. And you know, if you're sort of all of a sudden, wow, I've got to spend you know fifteen thousand dollars all in one go, that can be a lot mm-hmm. more intimidating than breaking it down into some of those those smaller right. pieces. And a lot of families that might have been thinking that they didn't have that as an option or like, no, I'll have to borrow a loan myself and get super excited when they find out that it's an option that means they won't have to borrow. So I really love them. Usually get information from the Student Financial Services Office. Again, that might be coming over the next several weeks. But if you want to get a jump start, you can always go to the school's website and just type in um, tuition payment plans. It will give you Mm. all the information you need. The earlier you sign up, the longer the term you'll have. So if you sign up in June, there's a good chance that you'll get, you know, an eight or a 10-month plan. If you sign up closer to the start of the um, academic year, it's going to be more like a six-month plan. I didn't know about that. That's really interesting advice. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I love it, yeah. Um, and and Jean, you're sort of bringing up. I think that there are there are sort of two ways that you can connect with your your college here. Like one is to sort of wait and see what they send you, um, and it's okay to wait and see what they send you in terms of a bill. You don't have to proactively seek that out. Um, but there's also sort of the element of going and doing some research and looking on the website and seeing sort of what you can learn about possibilities for you without being proactively informed about that. Um, Lauren, mm-hmm. what are some things that maybe families should start to think about? researching uh, proactively about their school um, in advance? Are there things that they can look for or pay attention to that might not be sent uh, in an admissions packet or an uh, orientation packet? Sure. I think one of the big ones in terms of being proactive, well, I think there's two big categories here. We can break them up if you want. But uh, one is is around um advice or counseling uh, with course selection. Um, I think that's something that some colleges do really well and some colleges, uh, you know, leave, leave it up to the student a bit to, to navigate that process on their own. And maybe this doesn't sound that intimidating when you think about, you know, they, students chose classes in high school. Well, you could be looking at literally hundreds of options available to you, and it could, it, it might very well be be overwhelming on on what to pick. So when you're saying, you know, reach out um, and be proactive with the college, I think accessing the advising process or the advising system or your assigned advisor or dean's office could be called any of those things. Um, it, it's really important for students to do. Like I said, some colleges will hold your hand a little bit and mm-hmm. either during orientation or within the first couple of days that you're there, they might ask you and say, here's your appointment time. You need to meet with your advisor in order to register for, cl- register for classes. Others will say, you can just register on your own. We're here if you need help. Um, Either way, this is something students should do. That is their job, to help guide students on choosing the right classes, um, not overwhelming themselves, making sure they're not taking something, uh, repeating something they don't have to take. Maybe they have an AP credit or dual enrollment credit. 
Um, so it could save you time and money by choosing the right classes uh, and certainly graduating in four years. You don't want to make any missteps. So I think that's really important to be proactive with the advising system for picking classes. Yeah, the the fact that there are so many choices and so many different pathways, I think is really exciting. But it also means that you might start down a path that um, you have to sort of backtrack a little bit to get back to a starting point if you change your mind. So uh, I, it can be really important to just sort of be aware of the general structure of courses, some of the things that might be required of you in that first year, uh, what classes you might look for in terms of intro level um, for particular subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, and one other thing is, you know, I was talking with a family about this just uh, yesterday. Um, you know, occasionally you will also have placement exams that you might take on campus before yeah. your schoolwork starts uh, to see what level you are for a particular language or for math or for science. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you want to be aware of those because there might be some summer studying that's involved uh, to get ready and brush up on your Spanish so that you're not doing the first year Spanish over again after having done three or four years in, in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, Jean, does this sort of, I, I know you've, you've had, um, you know, some in your family that have gone through uh, college. How much conversation uh-huh. did y'all have around sort of that course selection over the summer? And um, do you have any sort of advice around approaching that conversation as a family and ways of discussing what the menu of options is going to look like? Uh-huh. So both of my children went to schools with a core curriculum, so I really encourage them to you know, get as much of that out of the way in the first two years as possible. My daughter had an orientation that happened in June, but my son's orientation didn't happen until the week before. But in both cases, they had advisors that were kind of working with them. So we went over some of the, um, you know, the offerings that they were they would have they had available to them and sort of made some suggestions. Um, My son had some AP credits that, although it didn't allow him to opt out completely out of the course, it allowed him to take a higher level course. So instead of taking, you know, freshman English, he was able to take a higher level English class. So we just kind of looked at some of the different options available. Um, so we, we did have some conversation about it, but I was a little bit more hands off and letting them sort of decide with their advisor. Yeah. And I I do think that this is a a moment in time where probably students are most on their own in terms of just understanding what their course selection looks like. Um, Usually when they're moving between middle school and high school, they're going with a cohort of students. Um, Whenever they're making decisions about classes in advance of college, they have advisors and counselors that are telling them what to look for. In this context, students very rarely have peers that are going to the same college as they are going, Mm -hmm. and they haven't always connected with advisors just yet. So I do think it's really important for parents to be a sounding board, um, to ask Mm -hmm. questions, to do a little bit of research with the students. Um, You know, ultimately, this is going to be a choice that they're going to have to make. But being somebody who's there to talk it through with them, I think, can be really exciting experience. And it's fun to look at college classes and think about, oh, man, what would I take if I could go back while also keeping a distance and saying, you know, you don't have Mm -hmm. to take what I would have wanted to take, of course. Right. Right. That's that's so interesting. You're, you're saying that, Gene. It, it's bringing back memories for me uh, when I was my freshman year of college. Um, after During the ad drop period, I was failing my philosophy class, and I called my dad and said, should I drop this class? And he said, I'm not the right person to ask. I don't know if, if you should or not. He said, have you talked to your professor? And it hadn't even dawned on me to talk to my professor. I was so used to consulting my parents. Um, and I was kind of mad at him at the time for telling me that, he, you know, he wasn't the best person to go to. Um, but it encouraged me to go to professors. And uh, that was great advice. And that's something else that I would say being proactive is not just with the advisors. I think college... Um, is, is really different than high school and her, professors are accessible, but they're not there to, uh, they're not your, your babysitter. They're not your parent. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, so to know how to access, uh, access them um, is, is really important to help your child think about how to become an advocate for him or herself. Go to those office hours to ask those questions, make connections with professors, um, or whatever kind of support they need. Um, it might be uh, learning centers or disability services. It is all there for you, but uh, that it's more of a 
students' advocacy um, uh, skill that, that, that I think you can help your child acquire. Yeah, it, exactly. I, I think those are exactly. great points, Lauren. And I, I, I want to take just a moment um, here to uh, take a pause because we're going to do a break. But this is a really awesome transition, I think, into how students start to think about their engagement with their college campuses once they arrive. So we've done a great job, I think, so far of talking a little bit about what families can expect between the end of high school and the start of college. Let's talk a little bit when we come back from the break um, around what to do when you're actually there and some things to keep an eye out for. Um, So if you both will come back after the break, that would be awesome. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Now, before Jean, Lauren, and I return to our discussion about the transition to college, I thought we could shine a little spotlight on another terrific university in the U.S., For nearly 30 years, the University of Mary Washington served as the women's college for the University of Virginia. Today, this public liberal arts university enrolls approximately 4,400 men and women at its historic Fredericksburg campus. While the majority of students are native Virginians, the university attracts many fine scholars from Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, North Carolina, and and New Jersey, all up and down the mid-Atlantic. One great reason non-Virginia residents should consider University of Mary Washington is the Alvey Scholar Program, which provides one high-achieving freshman a full four-year scholarship to the university. All these scholars are also admitted to University of Mary Washington's honors program. From unique internship opportunities to creative research projects, the honors program helps students mature as critical thinkers, ready to enter the real world and make lasting change. Exciting first-year honors seminars currently available include Mad, Bad, and Evil Scientists, Toys as History, and the idea of cool. That's a class I never took. Although University of Mary Washington is known for its supportive campus environment, there's no better way to connect with other first years than through the university's living learning communities, LLCs. All first year students are placed in a living learning community that corresponds to the first year seminar in which they are enrolled. By combining residential life with academic coursework, LLCs provide everyone from social activists to budding leaders with a place to call home. And so we'll talk now a little bit more about this concept of home and students arriving on campus and finding themselves in a position where they are starting to spread their wings and learn about the opportunities that are available to them, like LLCs or like these interesting classes. But there's also sort of is occasionally a need for some support. Um, And so we want to sort of focus in on that, uh, starting with 
healthcare. Um, Gene, one of the big sort of moves to college is that, especially if you're going out of state, you no longer have the same doctor that you had back home. There might be some mm-hmm. complications with things like insurance. Um, what are some things that students need to be aware of and that parents can help um, sort of secure to make sure that students are taken care of from a healthcare perspective on college campuses? Great question. Yeah. So, um, once your child turns 18, you can no longer get information from your child's doctor unless your child has signed off on uh, a HIPAA form saying that you're a person that they are willing to have this information shared with. Um, it's really important before your child goes away, even if they're going to a school relatively close, that if something should happen to them, that you've got the appropriate forms filled out so that you could make decisions for your child if they were unconscious or, you know, if you needed to get information, you can usually get those forms from your primary care physician. Um, Again, families are going to see a charge on their bill for health insurance, and for most students, that can be easily waived if they're covered under a parent plan. And I would say that most students are not getting their routine health care near their college campus. Um, You know, most kids have a physical before they leave, and usually what they'd be required is, you know, they sprain their ankle or they, you know, break their arm and they need to go to the emergency room. There are health centers on campus, but they're generally not what we remember them as, is infirmaries where you could stay overnight and, you know, somebody would take care of you until you got well. Basically, now if you're sick and it's you know, it's late at night, they ship you out to a hospital. So the the health centers are more for kind of routine things, maybe throat cultures, ear infections, that kind of thing. Um, You know, usually your health insurance will cover that, but it's always a good idea to give your health insurance plan a call and make sure that that's, you know, that they would cover something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a huge expense that can probably be waived, but I think the most important thing to remember are those forms, you know, to make that if you need to make any decisions or be able to talk to your child's doctor. Um, We sometimes forget about that, that all of a sudden they're, you know, they're adults now and we no longer can make their appointments and get all that information like they could when they were, you know, 14 or 12 or whatever. So good, good information to have on hand so that, you know, give your child a copy, you have a copy, the school may want one as well. They usually will send along health forms. Again, another thing that your child should forward to you um, so that you can look those over and get them signed. Yeah, I think. And, you know, implicit in this whole conversation is this idea that students have to take ownership. I mean, you're not going to know that your student went and got throat cultures unless they tell you because you are Uh not there with them all the time and you don't get to sort of put your hand on their forehead and see whether they've got a fever. You also don't have an uh-huh. opportunity to see whether they're doing their homework or struggling with a particular class because that's not happening at the kitchen table anymore. Lauren, what are some sort of resources that students can take advantage of um, that might be really, really helpful for them as they start to struggle potentially academically, which every student will, right? College is challenging um, and you're going to have some challenging classes. So what can students do to help make sure that they're educational health is uh, on par with their sort of physical health? Absolutely. Well, first of all, there's so many opportunities to help a student succeed. I think, uh, you know, the men- maybe the mentality or the fear out there is that colleges are looking to, to weed out students uh, that, are, that, that are struggling. That's simply not true. Colleges right. are looking for students to succeed. They want them to graduate and graduate on time. So it's not in anybody's interest for a student to fail. So they put a lot of uh, safeguards in place, but it's, the student needs to advocate for herself to, to access those. So I already mentioned professor office, office hours. That's really huge in terms of not making your, your, yourself known to that professor, but getting just extra help, a clarifying concept. Maybe you learn better one-on-one through conversation. So that's super important to, um, to know when your, off, your professor's office hours are and to, to go to them before there's a problem. Um, there are all types of learning support services or learning centers. There could be a writing center, a math mm-hmm. center, a foreign language center. Typically, this, this is not for students that, um, you know, it is not just for students that, necessarily have a learning difference or disability, it's for any student that, that needs extra support. Um, so maybe you have your first college paper and 
you think you're a good writer. You were a good writer in, in <laughs> high school. Does that mean that you're a good writer in college? Well, maybe you should go find out. Um, so it, it, this is more of a drop-in style. Um, it could be a, a particular office. Sometimes it's just housed in the library. Um, it, it's usually upperclassmen, upperclassmen uh, within that major. So the math majors, juniors and seniors might, might be math tutors um, or, or so on. Um, there's also disability services, and that's usually more of a professional office uh, for that has advisors, not just not 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 just student tutors, um, but advisors to really help students uh, take advantage of the accommodations they need and deserve to be successful. Um, so whether that is uh, preferential seating in in a classroom or extended time or in separate testing environments, um, or maybe somebody take your notes. Uh, and coincidentally, I was a paid note taker when I was in college. Um, it was awesome. I, I thought I could get paid to, to do something that I have to do. I'm doing already go to class and take notes. And then I submitted it once a week. Um, and that was distributed to somebody, uh, uh, again, anonymously. I didn't know who was receiving it. Um, but it was, I was helping out another student and getting paid. So that was pretty great. So there's lots of different services, but it really is incumbent on the student to, to make it known um, what he or she needs to be successful. Um, Jean, I yeah. actually have a question. Have you ever, are any of these services, are they billed to the, if a student, you know, wants tutoring, is, is that normally free or is that something that'd be part of a bill? No, it's usually free if you went to one of the centers on campus. I mean, I'm sure that if you needed some more intense tutoring that you could arrange to, to pay for that. But in general, you can get it, you know, either at the tutoring center or even with, like you said, your professor. Just going to office hours, awesome. having a discussion, explaining what you're having trouble with, and they can help out. And, yeah, yeah, that's what I thought, but I wasn't sure. It's that's that's my understanding too, and especially those tutoring centers. I think you know you touched on on uh, something sort of briefly, Lauren. But th- these are great places to go to connect with people. But they're they're also. You know, if you're trying to make friends and you're a freshman, it can be a great place to go hang out. Often these places will have snacks. Mm-hmm. There are other students there. It's a great way to to just connect with others. And I just saw such a high correlation between a willingness to ask for help and students who are successful in my time, both as a student and as a staff member at a college. Um, and I think that that's really, really essential for students is to be comfortable with that idea of asking for help. Um, but, you know, this also, there's sort of is this underlying question that I wanted to put to both of you, because I think that, as you sort of mentioned, Lauren, there is a, a feeling of, I might have to fall back on my parents. I might have to ask them for help. I might have to say, should I drop this class? I might need to ask them for a little extra money, spending money, something like that. But there's sort of is this conversation channel uh, question that I'm really curious about your takes on. Because you can FaceTime anybody in 10 seconds. And these days, when students go away to college, they still have their stare, their parents at their fingertips. And perhaps worse, parents still have their kids at their fingertips. Uh, they can FaceTime them anytime that they are getting a little bit sort of lonely and missing their kids. So what would you say are good practices around communication between students and parents, especially in the early going uh, in that college transition? Wow. Well, I can try. Why don't you start, Dean? You're, you're, you're the mom of, of college students. <laughs> yeah. So my oldest child, I never heard from him. The only time I would, you know, get a response to an email was if I put in the subject line, um, "Do you need money or do you want Red Sox tickets?" And then I would get an immediate response. But other than that, <laughs> I would never hear from him. Um, my daughter, on the other hand, was very uh, was reaching out a lot, and and I felt more than she needed to be. So I kind of just let it go the year, and then at the end of the year, I just had a talk with her and said, you know, I think that you really know the answers to a lot of the questions that you're asking me. So before you start dialing, why don't you just think about what it is that you're going to ask me and what kind of, uh, you know, what solutions you could come up with for this problem on your own. And because I think, you know, this is, I I view college as sort of um, controlled adulthood, like there are people there to help you out. And most of the mistakes that you make are not, you know, career ending or, you know, life threatening. 
Um, so trying to learn to make some decisions and to sort of live with some of the consequences. Again, most of them are not earth-shattering, but I think she just was feeling like, oh, you know, this is a lot and I don't really know what to do. And, and it was much better the second year and going forward. Um, I don't know whether I, that was just giving her the, the opportunity to, like, she didn't feel like she had to call me anymore about things or, you know, whatever it was, it worked. So um, I think it's hard the first year because, as you both said, there are so many changes that are happening. You know, no one's reminding you to do your homework. No one's reminding you to get out of bed and go to class. You know, those things just kind of happening when you're in high school. But when you're in college, you're on your own. If you miss a class and miss a test, you know, if you don't do your homework, it's, you know, it's on you. So there's a lot of that kind of thing. I do remember my daughter calling in one of her earliest conversations and saying, it's Tuesday and I have to have 400 pages read by Friday. And I'm like, welcome to college. So, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of all those changes at once and, you know, freedom, staying up as late as you want, making decisions about going to parties or not, activities. So there's a lot. So I can understand kind of why, but I think we need to, to give our kids the freedom to make decisions on their own and to remind them that this is sort of the stage of adulthood that they're going through. You know, to want them to be independent when they finish this process. At least I did. Yeah, I think that's right. Lauren, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is, I, I agree with everything Jean says, uh, but I think this is also something that can be discussed in advance and should be. So before that transition happens, before they're, they're on campus and you, you say, say goodbye, uh, talk about that expectation. Is it going to be that so I, we're, we're going to uh, talk by phone or text once a day? Or, you know, if, I, if I'm never going to hear it from you, I, we will talk every Sunday evening. I need that from, from you in order right. to know that you're safe and healthy. Um, so lay that groundwork of, of, of your expectation. And then both parent and student should really stick by it. So if the parent says, you know, we're going to talk once a day, that doesn't mean that you're texting 10 times a day. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than the, than the, than the mom or dad who's texting in the, while your kid's trying to be in uh, listening in class. Um, so I think that's a conversation that can happen before they leave to, and to lay it out there to say, this is, this is new territory for both of us. I have anxiety as a parent to let go, but I trust you to make the right decisions. Um, and I'm here to listen and support, but I need to give you that space to, to do it. So this is what we're going to lay out of, of what, re- and maybe, I don't know, maybe Three texts a day is reasonable for your family. So, but but to, we'll to acknowledge that that what's reasonable and, and expected in advance is helpful. It's possible that that uh-huh. three is great and it might be too much. Gene um, and Lauren, I want to thank mm-hmm. you so much <laughs> yeah. for giving us time and attention to this topic and uh, for being so helpful in our conversation today. It's great to have you both on. Absolutely. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, nice Ian. to be here. All right, and thanks so much to all of you uh, listeners for joining us for today's show. And as we march into June and the summer, we'll hope you continue to join us here on Getting In a College Coach Conversation. Next week, Beth Heaton returns to the hosting chair to talk about getting the most out of your summer activities and to answer listener questions. You can always drop us a line at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Anyway, I hope you have a wonderful weekend and look forward to bringing you in on our next conversation right here at the same place and the same time. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.